Kia ora. You are listening to a 2018 special event podcast from Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki. English food writer and journalist Nigella Lawson started work as a book reviewer and restaurant critic, going on to become the deputy literary editor of the Sunday Times before embarking on a career as a freelance journalist. She has now become one of the world's most loved food writers and broadcasters, and is the author of numerous award-winning books, including How to Eat, How to Be a Domestic Goddess, Nigella Bites, and most recently, At My Table. Nigella appears in conversation with Paula Morris, and this event is supported by Penguin Random House. Good evening. Kia ora tato. Welcome to Nakwe and Nigella. Welcome Thank to Auckland. You. It's a rowdy crowd tonight, I think. <laughs> My sister's here. <laughs> she is. Um, if we can just begin with a, a really short personal anecdote. Mm-hmm. So about 10 years ago, uh, I lived in New Orleans. I taught at Tulane University in New Orleans. And once a year, the university put on a big thing for parents around graduation. So these two parents ran towards me. They said, oh, we're so pleased to meet you. We're so pleased to meet you. We want to tell you, we bought the book. And I said, oh, thank you very much. Which of my books did you buy? And they said, no, no, not yours, Nigella's. <laughs> I said, Molly, their daughter, she told us all about the chocolate pavlova you made. We can't wait to make it ourselves. So you're welcome, Nigella. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I have long been your operative, you see. So you have a room full of fans here. We're going to talk, as Anne said, for about an hour, and then we'll, we'll uh, turn it over for questions. And just to remind everyone, when we do have questions, they're questions, not statements, comments. No recipe questions, please. Not tonight. And then Nigella will be outside signing books, as Anne said. Now, Nigella and I have already been talking inside, so we've kind of exhausted it, really, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, we... You can get rid of your pen. Get rid of my pen. Do you want it back, actually? I've also told I always Nigella. feel easier when I'm holding a pen. So I, I do too, very authoritative. Yeah. I've already told Nigella I'm too vain to wear my glasses, so we'll muddle through as best we can. <laughs> I'll read the questions for you. Please, because... Mm. She's got very young eyes. I was just telling her, my, this is probably very, very boring, but anyway, I was just saying to my trick, which is, um, I always feel immensely youthful, because I can read without reading glasses, but it's only because I have... Uh, two different lenses in my eyes, one to read close and one to read, one to see far away. It's all a sham with Nigella. Everything's a sham. <laughs> I think we'll realise that tonight. <laughs> now, Nigella, you have said you've written you're not very good at authority. Yes. So I wondered if you could think back to when you were growing up as a teenager. I've read you describe yourself as bookish, but I wondered, were you also a rebellious teen? <sighs> Well, yes, I mean, in a way, though, I wasn't a rebellious teen. I was much more, I was more rebellious as a younger child. Um, and took, I mean, this is a very different say, I, I'm, there are certain sorts of childhoods which I think don't suit the person who is a child. And um, my childhood didn't suit me. I think that if you, if you don't really like running around, and you don't like being told what to do. Um, it's, it really is tedious. <laughs> and um, not, not only that, but I, I felt, it's an odd thing to say, I, I, I felt very inhibited by my surroundings. I think a lot of people do. Um, and for me, the refuge was books. And I often worry now that there's, well, perhaps people, that, that there's so much other forms of escape for children um, that I don't know how you would ever discover the immense companionship of reading. But I, but I certainly, partly I was also, partly my lack of authority is the age I was born into, because when I went to school, you didn't, young school, primary school, you didn't really have to do subjects you didn't like because it was a bit, it was hippie times, the 60s. I was born in 1960. And that's how I can always remember how old I am, because I, I 
pretty much tie. I have to say, what date, what date, what year is it? Oh, 2018, and I can remember then. But so, um, so when I was at school, we didn't do an awful lot, and therefore I didn't really understand you meant to, and then I took the 11 plus for a grammar school, and um, when they, they handed out the papers, and I did the English paper, and then they gave the maths paper out, and I had put my hand up, and they said, and I said, I gave it back to them, like, very politely, they said, look, I'm terribly sorry, I don't do this. <laughs> and... <laughs> I didn't get in then. Um, but nevertheless, so the thing is, uh, when I, so when I went to school, the strange thing was is that so I didn't do all the subjects you're meant to do, and you could just go and sit and read yourself. So I was nine, and I was reading the Brontes and enjoying that, and also reading in Blyton. I, I don't believe in the snobbery, um, that snobbery about books. You read what you love reading, and I don't, I don't think people should say, um, this book is better than that book. And I think it happens particularly for female writers that it, it's, always, it, it's always discussed as if it's a genre. And actually, I mean, all th th that I, I don't really believe it makes sense in terms of what you take from reading. I'm, I like voice, but, and although sometimes I tease people and I say, I, I you know, I. I don't like the vulgarity of plot. <laughs> but the real truth is, uh, I like a story to insinuate its way through the voice. And I think that's really quite hard to, to, to tear them apart. But, I, but that really was my rebelliousness. It wasn't anything noisy. It was more of a turning inward. So when did you start writing? Um, I, when I was nine, because, I mean, this is thank goodness I stopped. I wrote a play um, with two dramatists personae, both terrapins. Uh, one was called Recreation and one was called Activity and really it was um, discursive treatment about the meaning of life. <laughs> um, that's, that's, so not at all pretentious or precocious. <laughs> um, but in a way, I was very, very shy and didn't talk, and so all that babble had to happen inside of me. And then I wrote the beginnings of a thriller, and actually, I have to say, it's a great sadness to me that the genre is not one I can read very often. There are a few thriller writers I can read, but mostly, I, I'm, it's, I just think how, how many more books I'd be reading if I had those. Anyway, I tried my hand at, one, at, a, at a, a thriller, and I don't think that worked out either. I think I must have been about, I'm trying to think about 11. Um, and then obviously I wrote in my teenage years and before I wrote poetry. But as is well known, um, more people write poetry than read poetry. <laughs> uh, and that, and I just carried on, and then I, I, I didn't think I wanted to be a writer, and then I um, ruined that by becoming a journalist. <laughs> but, and then I found my voice in an odd way by writing about food, and I couldn't have foreseen that I was going to do that. Well, can we, can we wind the clock back then again to think about food? So you've written quite a lot about your mother cooking and also your grandmothers and their mm. influence on you. I wondered how you were formed as someone in terms of eating and cooking. Who were your influences when well, you were young? I didn't really have as a young person influences outside the home in that way, but I also actually didn't like eating um, as a child. I didn't really like st start eating until I was a teenager. I know, it's terribly odd, isn't it? I mean, I like certain things, but certain foods, but people often come up to me and they say they can't make their children eat, and I always say, just sort of step away from it a bit. Um, I, but, and it's, it's so odd, because I write now about the importance of the table and the home, but I think also I, I also found it slightly overwhelming. Um, but I was brought up in a very, very old-fashioned way that was old-fashioned even when I was a child, which was a long time ago, so that if you, you, you had to eat everything you were given. My parents had been children in the war. Um, you had to eat everything you were given, and you would have to sit in front of it 
until you ate it. And if you didn't finish it, your plate would be brought back with the food cold and congealed on it at the next meal, which is sort of seems to me a very strange way of making people eat. Um, and so it became a battle, and I think that in the end, that's not about the food. It became a battle of wills. And, it, uh, and as a child, you don't have much power, but you do have the power to refuse food. And as I say, I was a young child. It, I, it wasn't any, I, I, I'm very lucky to say I didn't have an eating disorder. I certainly ate enough, but I probably ate more, not, but not, not if I was being forced to. I had quite idiosyncratic tastes. I adored spinach. Buttered spinach was my idea of just the best thing you could eat. Um, but I, I was sent to boarding school, and actually that is really when my obsessive interest in food started, because the food there was so bad. And I would read about food and think about it and plan what I was going to... Um, plan what I was going to eat when I went home. I'd read recipes. I mean, it was quite, because it was obviously pre the internet. It was quite hard as a 14-year-old girl at boarding school to find, um, to find enough writing about food that you can read, mm -hmm. but I managed. And I know your mother instilled in you a great love of the roast chicken. Yes. But she wasn't a baker at all, was she? No, no, I, no, no, no one in my family was a baker, and I came to baking very late in life. I, you know, I thought the world divided into cooks and bakers, and I was definitely a cook. Um, and then I tried my hand at it. And really, when I was writing my first book, and I just I suddenly found that this is something I can do. And it, it, what a bakers are perpetrating a scam on the, on the public, <laughs> because this is not difficult. There, and uh, because there is a myth you know, that thing like in pastry, people say it skips a generation. Have you heard that? It's really mostly about whether you run hot or cold. If you have cold hands, you're going to make a better pastry. These days with machines, it probably makes less difference. But still, the chances are, if, you're, if your hands are quite cold, your pastry will be a lot better. Have you got cold hands? I, but they don't feel it when I touch them. But my, I, but I can make pastry, but I also make pastry because I, I, um, I, I read, so I'm quite interested in the science of cooking, perhaps because I have absolutely no technical knowledge myself, and, I, and I've read how to make pastry colder by putting it in the freezer for a while when it's in its little cubes, the butter's in its cubes. Um, I think I, I was very... I, I remember being interested in phrases people would say about, um, about cooking. And in terms of, yes, my mother wasn't a baker, my grandmother wasn't. I was very, very close to my grandmother. And um, we cooked together a lot. And that, she was not a maternal person. She, it, it, she wasn't um, the sort of person when you say, I cook with my grandmother. She wasn't that kind of a grandmother. She also took me to the theater. She took me... Um, to the Chichester Literary Th Festival when I was very young. We did all sorts of things together. And I, I, I remember saying to my children, I'm a very bad mother, obviously. I remember saying to my children, you know, I wasn't sure I uh, wanted children, but I was definite I wanted grandchildren and you were the necessary conduit. <laughs> and that was, I told them this when they were very small because I did think it was a very extraordinary relationship. Mm -hmm. um, so I... I enjoyed cooking with her, and in a, in a way, my mother was a certain sort of cook. She was a slightly more continental cook, very uh, intuitive, quite impatient. My grandmother was a cook from recipes, which my mother didn't. And I suppose that's where, my, because I was taught in a way to be a bit contemptuous of that. Um, and yet, so with my grandmother, sometimes I would I would copy out, she'd have recipes, I'd copy them out, I had a little folder, and, and when I was at school, I'd find recipes, and I'd, when I wrote her a letter, I'd send her a recipe, and it became a slight... Uh, we communicated in this way, and it interested me, and it, it, because it's still a language. A recipe is, 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 a, is, a, is a piece of writing. Now, I wanted to talk to you about, after you finished school, but before you went to university, you spent a year in Italy, or you went to Italy. And it seems this is really formative, because I've, I've got a quote mm. from you somewhere saying, 
that you really believe yourself to be truly Italian at yes. heart. So is this where it stands from? Further um, proof of the fact that I'm a sham, because obviously <laughs> I'm not Italian at all. I'm not Italian at all. Um, yes, but what happened is, I think, because I went to Italy at the 1819, um, I had applied to, um, I'd sat the Oxford, in those days you had to sit an entrance exam to get into Oxford, and I'd sat the exam in French and German, but I wanted to uh, study Italian. I just thought, I just thought, do you know I never needed to speak to another French person as long as I live. I've changed my mind about that, but I've done French for so long, and I just thought I need, I need to do something that's new. And um, so, they were quite snobbish, the doctor, because they felt, well, you didn't actually need to know any Italian that much to do Italian. If you'd done Latin and French, that was fine. But um, I said I'd planned to go to Italy in my year off, and I was going to go study at the British Institute and so forth. And obviously, I didn't do that at all. And I got a job as a chambermaid in a hotel. Um, when I was at Oxford once, we were trend talking, trend we, some Bertrand Russell, we had to translate into Italian. And I remember. Uh, it was called Professor Woodhouse, said to me, well, grammar's perfectly all right, Nigella, but I'm sure Bertrand Russell wouldn't have sounded like a Florentine greengrocer. <laughs> <laughs> Alas, now I just sound English. But, um, but I went there and I was, two things happened to me. I ate Italian food and I was brought up in an England where French cooking was revered. And it is wonderful. But there is something so liberating and direct about Italian food. It is simpler. You know, someone once said that French cooking draws attention to the cook and Italian cooking draws attention to the food. And I don't know if that's entirely true, and I'm sure it was an Italian who said it. <laughs> but um, I certainly think that's how, that's how it, it came to me. And the other form of liberation was having to speak in a foreign language. As I say, it's odd now I talk, but I really didn't talk. I was 19, and although I spoke when I was at school with my friends, I was shy. My mother used to say, when I was about 15, for God's sake, shyness is such a form of uh, self-centeredness. Who on earth do you think is interested in you? And actually, <laughs> I really understand it, but at the time, I, that really didn't help with shyness. Um, but, but, I do, but I do think that I developed a slightly different personality in Italian, which I think I then brought back with me in when I spoke English. I was much more outgoing um, and more spontaneous. And I, and I, so that Italianness really gave me a, a sense of myself, perhaps because sometimes you need to move away um, from home in order to get a sense of who you are, because otherwise everything is so connected to the family. And you were in Florence, is that right? I was in Florence, yes. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Were you a chambermaid the whole time? I, most, I was a chambermaid for a lot of time, and then I travelled a bit. I did go to the University uh, for Foreigners at Perugia for a while, but then I, decided, you know, I thought it wasn't really for me. It was difficult because, I, I mean, admittedly, I, still, I hadn't learned much grammar by then, but I could talk. Um, and I went to the south as well. I travelled to the south, but mostly I was just working as a chambermaid and trying on people's clothes and wearing their scent <laughs> and that sort of thing. <laughs> just, you need to know this happens. Did you try makeup? I'm always convinced that my no, makeup. No, I didn't try makeup. But just I didn't do makeup. I just did scent, put people's scent on, and would try on a coat or something like that. That's, you know, that sort of thing. So, <laughs> just as we all suspected. Uh, <laughs> after university, you, in a way, fell into writing for journalism. You've written for The Spectator. I for the went into publishing first, mm -hmm. but I, did, I, did, I went into publishing because I thought I was interested in books, and then I realised, in a way, that um, I couldn't, it, it was too slow, I'm too impatient. Um, I enjoyed it. And I had a, and it was, and it's good. I learned how to copy edit, so that's useful. But I, and I reviewed books a bit for, for some like the Times Higher Educational Supplement, you know, that for in in the evenings. I just did everything I could. I'd write and someone and try and get a bit of work, and then write to another person, and it sort of went on like that. 
I mean, it terrified me, but I was driven by that fear. Why did it terrify you? Well, I think writing is quite frightening. Um, I think that the fear of, I suppose there's a fear of making a fool of yourself, and, and yet this, need, you know, want, uh, this desire to do it. It's, I feel that, um, I think the before writing is always terrifying, and yet during writing is, a, is, that, is, is quite a wonderful state to be in. So you became a restaurant critic. The, that, when I became, I was, I'm trying to think, I was at the Sunday Times then, and I was uh, on the review front, so serialising books, and I was doing the odd bit of reviewing, but yes, I, but the, I became a restaurant critic a bit by mistake. Why? Because what happened was is that the editor then, Charles Moore, of The Spectator, I had been reviewing books. Anne Wilson was the literary editor, and I was reviewing books there. And um, you know how often in journalism, literary journalism is looked down on, like you're not doing the real thing. Um, and I liked the fact that I thought literary journalism was still, in a way, there, a form of criticism rather than journalism. I liked that. So Charles Moore said to me, it, I was 23 at the time, I think, well, you know, I'm glad you know, you're writing for us, but I think you should really write for the front half of the paper. And I just thought, well, look, I'm 23 and I'm trying to become a journalist. I can't say, but I don't agree with anything you ever say in the front half of the paper. <laughs> Um, I don't want to do that. So I've got to, um, I've got, so we made a lunch date for two weeks. I've got to suggest something. So I, what I did, rather than reading lots of issues, I took one issue of The Spectator and I read it cover to cover for, for two weeks. And I just thought, that's it. It's obviously got an affluent readership. They haven't got a restaurant. No one writes about food or restaurants. And in those days, there weren't restaurant reviews in that way. So I said, so I have a bit of a joke, I talked him into it. I said, it'd be very good for your readers and think of all the advertising revenue you'll get. They never got one ad, ever. <laughs> um, I think, and he said to me, uh, do it weekly, and I said, oh, I was thinking monthly. And so we compromised on uh, once every two weeks. And he got Jennifer Patterson, who used to cook their lunches there, to do the recipe column for the alternate weeks. And Jennifer Patterson of Two, two Fat, Fat Ladies. Ladies. Yes, and that's how we were, um, we started together. Wow. And, uh, and I enjoyed it. You know, I was, it, it was, in a way for me, it was interesting because the food scene was changing a lot in London. Well, let's talk about that, because it yeah. was the 80s, and you've jokingly referred to it as the gastronomic renaissance, or so they thought at the time. Yes. It was quite a I period of change. It was a huge change. It was, like all changes, sometimes it goes a bit too wrong in the opposite direction. I mean, there really were, you know, it was really the time when we had, um, and I'm not saying this just because I'm here, kiwi fruit on everything. <laughs> um, and, you know, there, you, if there was a vinegar on your salad, it was always raspberry vinegar. However, Actually, like all, um, like all movements, really, that, which I'm talking about really was Nouvelle Cuisine, when practiced by geniuses is wonderful, but most of the time it's, you know, well, it's to be polite to call them second-raters. Um, but for me, what it was an education is, was not so much in eating, but it was much more in trying to find a language to talk about food. Um, and... Um, and I enjoyed that. I also felt very strongly, and I suppose this is what led into the sort of food writer I became. I felt very, I was often challenged. I mean, I was challenged by chefs sometimes if they didn't like what I said. And I certainly didn't practice that contemporary, sneery form of writing, but occasionally I would say things they didn't like. And um, they would say, you know, what do you know when you're not a chef? And I used to have to say, but excuse me, uh, is it thus that only chefs are allowed to come to your restaurant? Mm -hmm. And also, I felt very strongly that people, to put it as it's really at its baldest, people are paying to go out and have an experience, and they need to know what kind of experience it is. Mm -hmm. And so, um, 
I would write about that, what it felt like to be there and what the food tasted like. I wasn't there to be someone who knew more about the food, but I think that we all go and eat, and this idea that, that your, your view is only valid if you're an expert um, is wrong. Um, and I think that, you know, when I discuss, um, you know, books with people, I don't feel that I just want to hear about the people who teach literature. I, you know, all you want to talk to readers. And in the same way as that in talking about food, you want to talk to eaters, not necessarily chefs. Um, so I suppose I, I felt that was quite, I suppose without knowing it, that's what led me to, to writing about food. Because I was saying this, I was thinking this is the beginning of you as a food writer mm. because you went then writing a food column for Vogue, yes. Yes. And that was from your perspective as an eater and a cook. And, and, it was a, as a, and a cook and, as a f uh, and feeling that this so-called uh, culinary renaissance had been uh, wonderful in its way, but it very much dwelt on uh, the professional sphere. And, it, and, the, and the home cook was slightly ridiculed as something rather um, un unvarnished, uncouth, and some uh, apologetic, bumbling, and all those things. I don't mind being all those things, but I don't think they're necessarily bad. Mm -hmm. And I and I felt that home cooking, in a way, was really told the story of who we are, where we're from, both culturally but also personally, and uh, the, the memories we have, which are bound up with food. And I and I. And I and I felt I don't think uh, in a in a with enormous zeal, but I felt it quite calmly and emphatically that it that there was a distortion going on, and the home cook and food as it is in the home had to be was a proper subject. Mm -hmm. But I also did feel apologetic. I think I mean I remember in fact you were talking uh, you mentioned. Uh, well, Anid Salman, and I remember talking to him when he said, oh, you're writing a book, and I'm oh, it's just a food book. You know, because that sense that um, it wasn't, you know, the great novel of the 20th century, or it wasn't uh, intellectual work, I'd always thought I, I suppose I'd write something cleverer, or hope to, and so I suppose that I think now food and food writing are treated with more respect, but certainly um, then, it wasn't. It, 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 if you were a chef and you were a, and you were male, that were all well and good. But as a woman writing about food, and certainly sometimes women felt that you were slightly le slightly letting the side down as well, which I understand. But I think we've moved on from there now. It's 20 years this year since mm. How to Eat was published. Yes. Incredible. So I have a, a few questions around mm. this. Firstly, how did you make that transition into deciding I'm going to write my own book and it's not a traditional cookbook, but it is about mm. the whole act of eating and enjoying food and sharing it. How did you make that step into thinking, I want to have my own book? Well, what happened was, is that John, my first husband, always used to say, because if we went out, I'd say, why have they put oil in this, not butter? And this is, what, what are they doing with this, you know, on the side? And it's thing, why? You know, it's what I feel like now when you go to restaurants sometimes. Why have you put these together? Was it a dare? You know? <laughs> and um, so he said, you know, you think everyone is so confident about their views about food, and they're not. I hasten to add that the first time I cooked for him, I spent ages making this rather lovely, I'm trying to remember whose recipe it was, it might have been a Claudia Roden recipe, a sort of uh, courgette zucchini with, with uh, saffron, and uh, it's a kind of sauce but to, to go with some chicken. And I was, it made a sauce, and I, when I put it on there, he went, oh, no gravy for me, please. <laughs> I don't know how it would carry on, um, but... Um, but he said he must do it, and I thought, I don't know. And then I was seeing Ed Victor, the great late Ed Victor, who's my uh, agent, although I'd never done anything. And we were having lunch, and I was saying that John thought I'd do this, and uh, John you know, he thought I should do a book called How to Eat. And I told him, and I said, but you know, Ed, I, I don't know, I'm, Ed had bored, rigid of hearing me talk about the fact that I was meant to be writing a novel. And um, he said, 
well, I jetta. Even, you know, even the great composers, they do have to do some chords. They do some chords, they do a few, then they maybe just, they play a piano sonata, then before they, you know. And so I went, okay, and he said, we discussed what the book might be. He said, I want you to go home now. Don't take your coat off. S write down, just send me a fax. That's how old, long time ago it was. <laughs> send me a fax of everything we've discussed and what you're going to do. And I, I, don't, I don't know, I can't remember. I mean, he, and I just did. I went home, I didn't take my coat off, because he said, you take your coat off, you'll stop, you'll get scared, you won't do it. Um, and so I did, and I said it to him, and then the book started, but it took a long time because uh, I was, um, I signed it when I was, I was pregnant with my son, and so ill, that's the thought of food, I couldn't do that. And then um, John got ill, he had oral cancer, just a terrible irony, and so the book had to be put off for quite a long time um, for that reason. But it, it, but I, didn't really know what book I was writing. And I wrote it so fast. I didn't really think it was going to be recipes. I thought it was going to be, you know, sort of postulating and general other, you know, more terrapins on trains talking <laughs> about the meaning of life. And, um, and then I wrote it so fast. I did, I did cook and I did do recipes, but I wrote it in so, so fast. I didn't really have time to think about exactly what it would become. And it, it's, it's a strange thing because it's half a recipe book and then half isn't, and then some recipes are just written as, well, well you could do this. Uh, well, it's a very organic book because you yes. say, well, now if you can make custard, you can make ice cream, yes. so here's the recipe. And, uh, and, and in many of the recipes, I was sort of teaching myself as I went along. So that's when I learned about baking. And it was in the course of that that I had thought I'd never do another book. It was just a one-off. But it was the course of that that I felt, oh, I want to, I've got to write a book about, about, to, about baking. I mean, they, and my publishers really tried to you know, stop me. They said, no one bakes. Uh, no one, they didn't then. It really was, uh, you know, a, a great, great granny somewhere. Mostly. I mean, a few things, but and, and I just, well, I was, I, that's what I want to do. And so you did Domestic Goddess. How to goddess. be a Domestic Goddess. Uh, I, you know, it's meant to be ironic title. <laughs> <laughs> As anyone who's ever seen the original end papers would know. By the way, can we just have a little aside quickly? How do you think you would do in the Great British Bake Off with poor Hollywood judging you? I wouldn't get in, I wouldn't get past the auditions. No? Well, no, because I just, I mean, it's, it's riveting and it's wonderful. And yet, the idea of making, I mean, when they say 36 biscuits, but I couldn't even make 12 that look identical. I can't make two that look identical. Um, They're such perfectionists. I, look, this is what I feel. To make good television, it ha one, it's very hard. To make good television, it has to dwell on what's so difficult about it. And it says, this is notoriously difficult, and... And what I want to do is show people, actually, it is easier than you think. So we have a different... We come at it from different perspectives. Uh, a lot of the, that sort of baking I couldn't do, and I wouldn't expect anyone... To, a French person wouldn't expect... Uh, someone who wasn't a pastry chef to do that sort of cooking. They just go to a shop. And, yeah, they do, and there's nothing wrong in that. And I think there's, you know, but also I feel there's, there's nothing wrong in any of it. You know, it doesn't make you a morally superior being if you cook. And I think distrust anyone who, who acts as if, who uses cooking in that way to feel better than other people or so thrilled with yourself. Because it's, you know, it's, I happen to like uh, cooking, but you know, it gives me, uh, you know, I get tremendous pleasure from buying a wonderful loaf of bread, some gorgeous cheese, and we were just discussing the wonderfulness of butter, butter. earlier on <laughs> backstage, and that you know, I get, that gives me as much pleasure as as making something. I don't. There's not a hierarchy, and um, in in this life, we should seek to find uh, as many uh, instances of pleasure as we can, not try and minimize them and pres prescribe, proscribe and prescribe as much as people do. So I, so I think that I, I, I think eating, I mean, there is a reason why my first book was called How to Eat. I think that eating is, is something that we do 
often together. When, you know, we were discussing my book Feast earlier, and one of the things that propelled that, which is, it's about food that celebrates life, is that how, as humans, all humans, we all use food to celebrate that something matters to us. And that often isn't in terms of cooking. People tend to go out for dinner to celebrate an anniversary, and often for a birthday. So it doesn't matter. It's about, it's about how food is a marker of um, an event for humans. And different religions use food differently. But in that sense, we, what we share is that it means something particular you know, to us. So I, so I suppose, I don't know. I don't think I'll ever write a shopping guide. But <laughs> I have to say, though, I, it's, it's, I, I, food shopping is the only kind of shopping I like. Um, that's not true. You like going on the internet and buying cookbooks. Oh, well, I could count that. I like book, you know, all book buying okay. I like. Um, I, you know, I love a bookshop. I like a food shop. And um, I actually do quite like, I like, I like buying makeup. That's not bad. Um, but otherwise, um, you know, it's, to be honest, it's shopping when you don't have to try things on. That's already a good thing. Um, but I, when I used to, um, sometimes I think, oh, well, I've done too much shopping. I used to leave things in the car and then have to bring half of it in under cover of darkness at night. <laughs> <laughs> I've completely ignored all my questions. And, I, uh, and also, I'll tell you what I find too as I get older. Yes. Which is that, you know, that I remember not understanding it when I was a child, when people say, oh, please don't get me a present. I've you know, got enough things. And look, I'm a, I don't mean everyone has, but I'm, in, I'm lucky, I'm privileged, I'm fortunate, and I know that, and I'm grateful. But I don't need more things. So I always think that you know, presents that you can read or eat are fantastic. Absolutely. <laughs> what was it like when you first started making TV shows and becoming this public persona? Because I think in How to Eat, you said, I'm not a chef and I'm not a performer. But in a way, you had to become a performer or was seen as one once yes, you were on TV. Yes, I know, but it was odd. So what happened? I said no at first. And I didn't want to do it. And then I said, look, OK, I will do. We'll try it. Let's try a pilot. And I'll do it if I can do it at home. I don't make my programs at home now, but I did at the beginning. Um, if I can do it at home and if I'm not scripted. And actually, I was Channel 4 then I was on. And it was quite brave of them to let someone do something like that. But so I did it at home with a poor sound man as I was sort of opening opening drawers and making huge banging noises trying to get my things out. But I, and I did actually enjoy it. I did enjoy doing it. I, I felt, the thing about making a television program with a very small crew is that you don't really have a sense of it being a very enormously public. And that's quite odd. So you, I sort of, I, I was really talking to one person. Um, which I still am. I'm, I'm still much, I'm much more comfortable in a way talking to a camera because I forget the cameras there because I, you know, really have the same crew uh, more or less forever um, than I am having a camera observing me when I'm doing something else. I don't like to be aware of a camera. So you said it was originally in your house, but then it all got too big and you had to well, move to Well, it was different. When I did it at my house a little, it was the children were very young and. Uh, you know, John had terminal cancer, and I didn't really want to be very far away. And it wasn't practical to, to do that. I mean, it was then, later on, it, it became, it's difficult. The thing about filming at home is that it becomes an act of great arrogance, because you can't, you have to tell everyone else not to make any noise. When the children were very little, it was easier to do that. But you can't say, shush, and don't that. It's like saying, my life is more important than yours, and I think that's not right. And uh, also, the, believe me, the you know, director and cameraman get very tired of all available camera angles. I mean, the fact that we managed for so long was something of a miracle. But, I mean, I, so now we filmed the studio. It was based on the kitchen I have now, although we changed it a bit for the new one. And I bring all my own clutter, so my house is a bit denuded when we're making it. So I used to, and the real truth is, is that, so I would say that it, it's, this is the difficult thing about TV, is that it is artificial, and yet, uh, it's, it's very artificial. Everything is, you know, I'm in hair and makeup. Um, I, can't, I don't have a wrinkle in my sleeves. Everything is done, so it's right. The lighting is there. And yet, TV is a great phoniness de detector. You just, if people aren't who they are, it doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. And the truth of something, 
the truth is something can be slightly separate. I'm cooking my food, and it's real food, and I'm talking about it, and it's the things I want to say about it. And in the same way as that when I, if I rent a house for a holiday and I cook, after a while, at the beginning, I just feel I don't know how I can cope in here without um, you know, the right, all the right bits and pieces. And after a while, you get used to it, you grow rather fond of that saucepan or that rickety board. Although, as I say, the saucepans are mine in the program, and I, I feel quite at home in it. But I, know, I don't know if I went somewhere completely new and nothing to do with me, I think I'd find it odd for a day, and then after that, I'd feel at home. I mean, having said that, I do control nearly every aspect. I'm very, I like the bowls that things go in and what it looks like. I, I need to feel that sense of it, that it's mine. So are you a, quite a controlling person? <laughs> I am, um, am I? I am either very controlling or I let it all go. Mm -hmm. I find a middle path very hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because there's an, a really interesting picture of you emerges from your books and your TV mm. show. So you're someone who really likes to be organized and have order, but at the same time you struggle mm. with it. I don't like, I, I like a certain amount um, of order, but I don't, I hate planning. But I will always, I plan things like what I'm going to cook, and I do set, put things, I, my phone, now I used to write it all down, but now I do sometimes, I write it down for big things, but otherwise I have, on my iPhone, I have little things going off. Sometimes I've got totally bells going off, I don't know what's happening, because it says preheat oven, put chicken in oven, and, so, and I've got them all going off, so I've got this one going five minutes before, this one at the time. So I like structure, but I don't like being told what to do, even by myself. Um, but, but I think that's how most of us are. We need a certain amount of structure, but then we just need to ignore it a bit. And is it true that one of your nicknames from Hetty is Frank, as in Frank Spencer? Yes, because I'm very so clumsy. Are you yes. really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, uh, Dom, Dominic Syriax, the director of my programs, always, when I'm doing something with a knife, he's like this at the monitor. He says, I can't bear to watch you with your borderline dyspraxia. <laughs> I have cut myself so often, I'm always grating myself. Um, and we've got more relaxed. I, you know, he leaves in more of my dropping things mm -hmm. now in the programs. I am, and I was very self-conscious about it as a child. I was teased for being clumsy. I was being told off or teased by being clumsy. And um, Karen Reed from Random House, who's on that tour with me, was teases me for being so uncoordinated. You know, I trip over anything. I, I, as I walk through a door talking to people, I just miss half the door. I've got bruise, <laughs> huge bruise here from some door or bit of something I walked into. Um, but now I just feel that's, that's what I am. Mm -hmm. that's, I can't really do anything about it. So some things about us don't change, but I wonder, in fact, I think this is my sister's question. In 20 years of publishing books, do you feel that your cooking or your style of cooking, your approach has changed? It's gone through so many different, it basically, no, I don't think it has. I don't think it can. It goes through different things. I remember how to eat had perhaps more recipes that were more complicated than when I, you know, because even though I had children when, it, when I was writing it, a lot of them came from before then and so longer. And then I think I have, I, I tailor things depending on what I'm going through, but I certainly feel my feeling about food and the importance of flavor and how that flavor is made hasn't changed. Maybe I'm, I don't think it can change and I don't think my voice has changed enormously. I'm not really the best judge of that. Um, I feel, and I, in a way I feel I have a particular relationship with readers because I feel my voice is, is, is very much part of me. I feel that the fact that I'm, you know, quite sardonic comes across quite a lot. Whereas a lot of people, if they haven't read and they think, in, they always think, oh, you know, she cooks, nice fluffy person. And, you know, the, it, really not. <laughs> and um, so, but I, it's hard to judge from the outside. I really don't know. But I think that I don't, I don't think that I've changed my views about food. I don't think I've changed the way I write about it. Um, I sometimes feel um, that 
I don't know that I've had new thoughts, and that sometimes worries me. But then I don't know whether it's just a small shift is, is, is change enough. I don't look to do, you know, I always feel embarrassed when people say, what's new about your new book? And I always say, well, the recipes are new, but you know, it's really more of my babbling and more of my recipes. <laughs> I don't really know, that, and the same is true when I do TV. I don't, the TV has more of a change because that often can depend on the editor. Uh, television is an editor's medium. But because I work with the same director, and I think we just do it in the same way, perhaps we relax a bit more in, in the edit, but I, I, don't know that, I don't know that I can be someone else. I don't have the skill. Do you feel pressure to be coming up with a new book or a new series all the time? Well, I've only once had any pressure put on me, and I just said, Look, it's, I completely understand that if you want a program next year, but I am not doing one, so it's, I, I would never, I wouldn't expect to be employed again if I didn't do that, you know, but I feel I have to know, I can't be a churning out machine. And I always get a bit of a panic that I always think I'm never gonna have another idea. Um, and so far I have, but I might not. I don't know, I, and I, don't, I don't think I'd want to, to, to focus group my way into it, mm -hmm. you know, if I don't have an idea. I have, there, there are a couple of things I have on the back burner that, are, that have been on the back, been on the back burner for, for quite a long time. And in fact, I have had contracts for these two books and not done them before. But in the same way as Kitchen, I did a contract for Kitchen probably 10 years or almost um, that, before I wrote it. And then I decided, no, that wasn't the right, I was gonna do something else. So I've, there are a couple of books that I have drawn up contracts and then um, not proceeded with. Do you want to tell Given us what back, they are? No. <laughs> Given back, I didn't get to getting the advance on one and gave back the advance on another. Gosh. Um, but I, or when I'm given advance, if I don't, because I haven't got very far with it, I put it separate until I do. I'm always frightened I won't finish a book. Mm -hmm. um, but that was some time ago. But one, but one, I just got to a discussion stage and with Ed, um, my agent. Who died last he year. He died last yes. year, and um, just a huge sadness to me. Mm. Also, because he so loved food, and I, you know, I miss telling him what I'm eating or what I'm cooking, or him telling me what he's eating or cooking. Would you ever consider doing, you know, one of these places, books or shows where you go to a country and travel around and do I, the food Do you day? know what? I would quite like that. I would quite like that. I don't know if I'd be any good at it because what I just don't know if I can do is that thing when you're at a greengrocer and you're saying in a, you know, anything like that to the person working there, and so what is a mango? You know, because <laughs> that is the trouble. They make you, I think they make you ask questions when you know the answers. And I think because things like that, and so I think I could only do it if, the, if I didn't have that. In the same way as I only can do my programs without being scripted, and I, and I think it's just my fear of, you know, filling the silence that makes me, I dread, I think like, I, I, when I'm sitting, I stand there like that, and then Dom says, action, and I go like that, okay, well, I've got to say something, and um, I talk. Um, but I've got something to do because I'm describing, because when we start, when you film, it's quite interesting, when you, because I film in a, like, it's a very different way than anyone else films, I think. We have one camera, and so we have to light for each bit. So it starts off, it's a wide shot. So the camera's a long way away, and it's like an establishing geography. So I might be walking through so you can see where the kitchen is, or I'm talking about the cooking. And we start with this wide shot. Now, no one who's filming, like the director or the cameraman, um, can't see inside the pot. So really, I'm like a sports commentator saying what's going on. So I'm really describing it, and I don't decide. So sometimes something shoots up in this you know, wonderful fiery orange way, and I'll describe that. And it goes, that's how it goes, really, um, I'm really otherwise. So I'm not on the visual side, so I just do it in words. I'm... I'm actually in the sound, I'm known as deputy sound. <laughs> um, I'm really in the sound department because one of the things that occurred to me when um, we started doing the food program was that if you take smell away from food, it's hard. So my, what I think is that sound has to do the job of smell. 
And I have an incredible sound man who was worked with. And in fact, I did once infuriate the, uh, the visual department, camera and directing, or as we call the shouting, the shouting and pointing department, we call it, um, by taking something out of shot because it was so good. So sometimes as well, we do, so we have five goes. That's if, that's if there's no technical blip and that's if I don't, you know, bugger up. Um, we, so one is wide and then we do um, what we call uppy downy. So you do a mid shot, you can do a mid shot and then uppy downy so you get some sense. So sometimes I won't be in shot, but it, gets, it gives movement. It's, a, it's our own little, it's our own crew way of doing it. And then we do something we erroneously call a mime. And why I say erroneously, because rather than doing everything except words, all we do are words. And the camera, I don't know if you notice it, but the camera is on me. Not many people do this. The camera is on me incredibly tight like this. And I'm talking about the words as if I'm doing it and I'm sort of making the movements. And we do that because um, it gives, if there's anything slight continuity issue that, it gives a, something you can edit to. And also it gives you a clean pass, so you're not always, because I'm always bagging things and dropping things, and so it means you've got some sound without all that. And then we have two passes on the food. One that we call Sideshow Bob, um, <laughs> which is when you're putting it's sideways, so all you can see is movement. Not me see, it costs a lot to do these programs because one camera, because not many, most people don't do it, like that, do it like that. That's why we take, that's why we take about a week to do a one 30 minute episode. Um, so you just see the movement sideways or something being poured in and then one in uh, there. Uh, those two are collectively known as hands and pans. And during hands and pans, I can make faces to the sound man. So like if I'm taking the cork out of a bottle and we both go, oh yes. And sometimes I've got a very old coffee canister I use and there's always a slight pop of air. Or when I crush the, <laughs> and I put the limes through that Mexican elbow and you can really hear it. That's everything being squished. squished. And sometimes I do it, even the sound man can't bear it. When I start breaking, um, you know, chicken bones and cracking onto it in the cartilage, and he has to go like that. Um, but it's, so for me, those, the, it, it, that, that's a different form of language, but it's important. Absolutely. This is an incredible insight into the making of television, don't you agree? Well, it's so, I, don't, I don't know how many other people make television programs like that because it's... it's it, but what it's very good is that I feel that um, I always get worried that I'm not going to be able to remember or do anything because you do also have to remember what arm you used at the time and it's, you develop a strange muscle memory because you can't cut if you're not, if I'm leaning forward as I'm saying a particular thing and taking a lid off, if I don't do it somewhere else, unless we have to go back to that very close shot, the mime. Um, so, but it's, so I feel that it probably is the only thing that's keeping my synapses from firing still, because I always <laughs> think, oh no, because I'm aware my memory is not as good as it was, so you, it's the only thing now that keeps my memory working, I think. So how do you feel about taking part in these bigger cookery shows, like you, MasterChef in Australia, you've done several series, and also The Taste in mm. the US, which I watched and enjoyed. Mm. That must be, those must be quite complicated. Well, there is also something wonderful about being in a television programme you, you don't have any responsibility for. There's some, I, I mean, it is, I do find it quite daunting um, being in effect in a one-woman play every day, you know, that, but does the stamina, as I get all the stamina needed. If I can't think of what to say, what happens? There's no one else to do it. Um, and, you know, if I'm not quite, if I'm not in quite full-on uh, form, I feel that it's difficult, one has to be the motor. But as Chris, the sign man, always says about our productions, we have, um, you know, we only have, we have two speeds, which is, you know, slow and reverse. <laughs> That's what it does. It does take a long time. Um, where, but, um, but I think I like doing MasterChef Australia because I find it quite a very kind program, and I think the people on it want to learn, and 
the judges on it want to teach. And there's a lot of kindnesses that go on that aren't on camera as well, and I like that. I mean, look, the real truth is, it's always at odds slightly with what I feel, because I don't think cooking is a competitive sport. But I also understand that people like competing, and I f feel that as long as, you know, there are lots of different ways of being good, and that is one way of, that is one way of it. And it's, the thing is, I think as long as no one has ever um, criticized personally, or in any way made to feel bad about themselves. I mean, unless they've done something awful themselves, but I think that then I'm okay with it, and then I enjoy it. The taste, I was very much, you know, it was Tony Bourdain and I were both um, executive producers together, and we both wanted to work with one another, and I made lifelong friends as well with that uh, fabulous uh, French chef in LA, Ludo Lefebvre. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't, do I honestly, I, do I feel I was put on earth to do that program? I really don't. Um, I've done other things I haven't felt that I was put on earth to do. Um, some, you know, some things I have, that I've really not enjoyed. And I, but I loved working with the boys, with all of them. I like that. But in many ways, it also made me feel bad about myself in some things. That's not a terrible thing, you know, it just happens. Why did it make you feel bad about yourself? Because I felt that, in a way, I don't, I felt that I, it was hard for me because when you're, when people are picking judges, you know, I was the least well-known in America and I was, in a way as well, not really in a position to help anyone. And I think quite sensibly, a lot of them want to go to a judge who can help, they want to be a chef. If you want to be a chef, why on earth would you want to be taught anything by me and what, do I, what can I teach them? So that, and I think that it made all the things, all the things that I tell other people not to do, um, I did. And, you know, felt um, inadequate and bad about myself. But, um, but I did, not when I was judging or tasting, that's interesting, because it's quite interesting tastings when you don't know what things are. Um, and I enjoyed the, dis, you know, d discussing it. I feel my... A horror of authority extends, I fear, to being an authority. And I don't think, um, I think I'd learnt now, I would think I would be a better teacher now. Mm -hmm. um, but all the same, I, I don't, I couldn't, I still couldn't teach someone to be a chef. So, it, so, I, so I don't know, it, it's, it in many ways, um, I, whereas I don't feel that, I feel very much part of it and part, when I do, uh, MasterChef in Australia, that's, that feels differently, because that feels different, I don't know why. I feel I can really talk from the heart and, and do something, and, and I am me. Um, but for whatever reason, I think um, I was daunted a bit by some of the tasks um, th that I took on. Now, I have to say, those other chefs may be very famous, but I don't think any of them have been reference an episode of Modern Family. <laughs> or an episode of Gavin and Stacey, for that matter. Or the West Wing. Is it strange to you sometimes that millions of people know you just by your first name? The thing is, I have such an absurd first name. I've been known by my first name since I was in nursery school. And so I don't, you know, what I mean is that really it is us mad. So I've never really used, um, I remember being really mean to John when, because um, when I phone up to say hi, it's Nigella here, and John, I heard John once saying on the phone, I'm John here. I said, John? You can't just say it's John here. <laughs> um, but I think that, so I, in that sense, I don't, I, it doesn't feel, it's so hard to, to flip it or something like that. I always feel a bit, I don't know, I just feel like a person. And so sometimes I, I, I feel a bit alienated if people think I'm something other than I am. I always think, I get anxious if I think people think I'm better than I am. So, so, I don't know. But I think it's really nice, actually. Pe I mean, there's you, there's Jamie, there's Delia, people who yes. we know as if by their first names. We don't think about Nigel Slater as just Nigel or... 
Rick Steiner's Rick, do I we? I don't know why we don't with Nigel, you know. Sometimes I think, if you, you know, but if you said Nigel, I'm cooking Nigel tonight, you'd know it was Nigel Slater. Well, they might think you really meant Nigella and they were just... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I, I don't think so, but I, but I do think it is... It's about the, you know, it's about the importance I think food has in our, in our lives. And that's something that I... That it's lovely for me to be in someone's home. I, I, I do, I, I'll never get over that. Actually, and I feel it sounds like you're, you know, the equivalent of, you know, that starlet in Singing in the Rain. If you start saying, you know, I feel, you know, it's a privilege, but it is a privilege, and um, I, I'm, I'm very, I find it moving and touched, and I like the conversation, and it's, 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 it's a very intimate thing. It's quite a responsibility as well. We put our Christmases in your hands. Well, I take the responsibility incredibly seriously. I test and test and test recipes. And even when I know they work, I see if I can make them easier. And that's the truth. Every time you, you cook something, you could um, you can make it. But I think also, because I do it such a lot, I always try and write what's happening at the time rather than just give moments. You know, I try and, I try and be there in the kitchen um, with with a reader. I, I think that's very important. So you're a natural teacher? Except that, I, do you know, I suppose I, I still am very aware of my clumsiness and I don't really mind it, but it would make me feel self-conscious if I, I know that if I was teaching someone how to whisk something, I'd drop the whisk in and that sort of thing. <laughs> I did once do a cooking school and set fire to a kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You have been listening to a podcast from Auckland Writers' Festival, Waitūhi o Tamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.